we're likely getting to the point very soon when nearly half the adult population doesn't see themselves as, as belonging to a particular religion, kind of nothing in particular. Certainly with millennials and Gen Zs, that, that number is increasing really quickly. But people are still, still hungry, still searching. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome, 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 welcome to the show. So right now, you guys, we are in a series called For the Love of Faith Shakers. This is our third faith series. And the community response, your response to these are, is always really, really high. And so I know these are conversations we're interested in, leaders that we really want to hear from. And so this one has a different through line than our last two. In Faith Shakers, we were interested in talking to leaders and innovators who are walking faith out in non-traditional spaces. So we're not looking necessarily at pastors or church leadership or even like institutional authorities. We were like, who's out in completely different zip codes, right? With their faith, where are they leading? And what does that look like? And what, what's the community like? And so it's been fascinating. Like I have loved recording this series. I've loved these interviews. These people are smart and intelligent and interesting and creative and curious. And it's kind of my favorite brand of faith leader. And so if you have walked with me at all the last few years, you've watched me. I mean, you've, you have seen my faith become tested, adjusted, celebrated, questioned. And frankly, I mean, I, I can just give you my own experience here. It helped. My faith helped through all kinds of life events. It has been at times very difficult to grapple with what I was taught in my formative years, things that I carried through to young adulthood and into our early family years, even in my young season of faith leadership. I mean, I, I could just cringe by some of the stuff I was putting out in the world. It was, I have to choose to have a generous response to that because it was a mix of earnestness a mix of immaturity. It was a lack of exposure. So I have to give myself grace that I grew and I learned and I listened and I evolved. And ultimately around a ton of things, I changed my mind. I think for the better, for a more, for a wiser, more complete, richer version of faith than the one I was practicing. And obviously I'm not the only one experiencing a bit of a faith revolution. I mean, this is at least in our community. I think this is a real standard story. This is something that we have rallied around countless times. The last few years have shown that millions of people are leaving the church behind and they are finding ways to practice their faith outside of the pews. So here's an interesting like stake in the ground. In 1999, Almost 70% of U.S. adults said that they belonged to a religious institution. And in 2020, so just essentially 20 years later, that number was down to 47%. It's a pretty big swing in a short amount of time. And of course, the reasons for this are many and varied. And I wanted us as a podcast community to look deeper as to kind of the trends. Why are people leaving? Where are they finding community? Is the church experience still relevant? What is its future? And where's the hope in all this? So you're going to love my guest today, you guys. Whoa, I'm not kidding. You're going to love him. He's an author. He is a speaker. He is a podcaster. He is fantastic. His name is Casper Turkile. He has spent a ton of time looking at this phenomenon. He's done research on why 
Millennials are leaving religious institutions in droves and what it is they are searching for, where they are finding connection and hope. He published a study titled How We Gather, which discusses this millennial exodus from the church and how they are transitioning into a more spiritual journey instead of a religious one. Although I'm interested, I can't wait for you to hear how he talks about religion and religious practices. it's, It's very generous. I kind of love his definition of it. And even I was, as I was talking to him, I'm like, oh, you're kind of reclaiming that word. Like you're reclaiming that idea for, I think the beautiful center of it, it was always meant to be. So you're going to love to hear him talk about that. Casper's the author of The Power of Ritual. He's the co-founder of the Sacred Design Lab, and he's the co-creator of several podcasts, including Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and another one called The Real Question. He is delightful, and he's lovely, and he's smart. He's winsome. Like, I loved this conversation. I think you are too. There's a lot to learn here. There's a lot to reimagine, maybe some things to grapple with. But ultimately, I feel like this next chapter in the community of faith is going to be beautiful. And that's what today's conversation is about. So if you don't already know him, I'm so happy to introduce him to my community. You guys welcome the absolutely lovely Casper Turkile. Casper, I am really like just delighted to have you on the show. I'm so happy to meet you. And I am really looking forward to this conversation with you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. I I was thrilled when I got your invitation. I did a little happy dance. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's the kind of reaction I'm always hoping to inspire. Just a small happy dance. Little happy dance, yeah. So, okay, I've already filled in my listeners a little bit about who you are and kind of what it is that you do. But for those of us who are new to you, new to your work, would you mind just kind of starting from a high level and telling my community who you are, what it is you do, where are you in the world? Who are your people? Like locate yourself for us in this in this zeitgeist. Perfect. So I grew up in the United Kingdom in, in England. And in England, about 6% of people go to church on a Sunday. It's a very, very different kind of religious, spiritual context. And I grew up without any sort of faith background, but we had a lot of rituals at home and in the school that I went to. So we decorated lanterns and walked through the streets and sang songs on Michaelmas. We decorated Easter eggs, you know, on, and had an Easter egg competition to see who had made the most beautiful one with my entire extended family. And there was a midsummer bonfire and, you know, we read the Christmas carol at Christmas time. And so there was a really rich sense of being at home in the world through the rituals that we had. And even though I was not religious, but, you know, we didn't attend a congregation. And definitely once I came out as a teenager and felt pretty marginalized by religious institutions and was like, well, screw you right back. You know, I I don't need you. I then later as a young adult, you know, my early 20s, my first career, had an experience of being really involved in activism. I was a climate change activist and realized that the tools that I had to try and change the world were insufficient 
for the kind of transformation that I was hoping to see. And that to try and create change in the outside world without paying attention to the change on the inside was insufficient. And so I found myself as a gay atheist in divinity school at Harvard. Mm. Where I was Just like, as you do. As you, you know, do. Like people do, right? <laughs> yes. But I really wanted to ask this question, what do people like me who are who are unaffiliated, right? Who who don't fit into a traditional religious box. Where do people like me go to find meaning and belonging? And how can how can I maybe train to? This was the language I used at the time. Like, how can I train to be a minister for non-religious people? And that's really been my work over the last decade is to try and understand this rapidly changing landscape of of people who are still spiritual in some way but don't fit into a religious box who are still looking for meaning and belonging and a sense of purpose and and a sense of justice in the world, but they're not going to go back to a congregation. Maybe like me, they never grew up with one. And so that's been the place in which I've been playing with different projects and research endeavors. And And it's the question that I get so excited about every morning, because even though we're seeing this incredible decline in traditional religious institutions, right? The, the average is, uh, the guess is that like three and a half thousand churches close every day. We're likely getting to the point very soon when nearly half the adult population doesn't see themselves as, as belonging to a particular religion, kind of nothing in particular. Certainly with millennials and Gen Zs, that, that number is increasing really quickly. But people are still still hungry, still searching. And so what yeah. do we do to meet that, to meet that searching? I love this. I love this question. I love this work. I love your approach. I asked such similar questions and dug really deep at this from the inside. You did it from the outside. I was a church darling and watching the mass exodus happen, even understanding it in my bones. It was didn't feel like a mystery to me. I got it. I you got, got the it. deal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I and I came from a church leadership place. And so I was a pastor's daughter, and then I married one. And so I came from the structures. You know, I came from inside the institution, but asked all these same questions. Before we get into kind of your findings and what you're discovering, your story is so interesting. Can you talk for just another minute about your personal experience here? Because you're an you're a gay atheist in divinity school. Like we can't just drop it right there. Like I, I I'm sorry. I, I need to know. Like what was that like? And what what did you make of what you were hearing? And a lot of that language had to be brand new to you. I mean, even the concepts of it. And what happened internally to you? I, I'm fascinated. And I couldn't tell you the difference between a Catholic and a Presbyterian. No, I, sure. I was I was really starting out with with nothing. But here's the thing, Jen. I. I always knew I wasn't going to end up, you know, with, within the traditional structures, but I kept meeting people and I kept learning wisdom and, and practices and ways of thinking about what life is for and what really matters that made me say, these people know something that I need to learn. There is something I respect about the way these people are living their lives that I am not finding in the rest of the secular world. So for example, you know, I ended up in divinity school because I was doing a joint program with the public policy program on the other side of campus. And in, in the policy school, they asked questions like, how do we reduce recidivism? So the, the rates in which people reoffend after they've been incarcerated, right? But the divinity school asked questions like, why do we have prisons? And that was a question I was really interested in because I think I just have a heart for people. You know, I was, I was in boarding school as a 13 and 14 year old queer kid. I didn't have any friends. 
I would talk to myself pretending that I had a friend who was a hairdresser, you know, because they're always good with chit chat. Uh, (laughs) And so I just always, I've always been at least conscious, I hope, of of people who were pushed to the margins because I had that experience myself. And so I, 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 like I'm, I'm a people person, and so when I when, when I met people who who maybe were pastors or who were you know deeply faithful and had this kind of generous, hopeful outlook that was grounded in tradition but looking forward, I was like, I want to be like you. Mm, and the thing lovely. that you said about being embedded in structures, this is for me where really the difference lies because there are some folks you know, within the church institutions who want to hold onto those structures for dear life, even if it crushes them and everyone around them. Absolutely right. And then there are people who say, look, I know that this particular expression of religious life is coming to an end, but, and this is in a Christian theological language, I believe in life after death, right? Like I know that there are new structures that are coming that will hold the kind of spirituality and, and justice-oriented relationships that really matter to me. I don't know what they are and I'm a little nervous about it, but I'm, I'm going to trust that something new is coming. And so I found those people and some of them are Catholic nuns in their eighties. Some of them are innovative, like Buddhist or Muslim leaders in their thirties. You know, one of the joys of this work is, is really allowing for a much more kind of mixed spiritual ecology. So we're no longer defined by like, Oh, everyone has to be Presbyterian with me. It's like, look, you're on your journey. I'm on mine. I grew up in a household with these influences. You grew up with those. Let's find the beauty in one another's tradition and walk together. Okay. I promise you I'm going to have one last question, then we're moving on. <laughs> I'm just like, I just want to be sitting next to you for those years that you are listening and learning and observing. And I'm curious, how did it feel to you internally to start? <laughs> I mean, you were obviously curious and super open. That's clear, but did you feel conflict internally when you started going, am I going to believe this? Like, is this, am I going to be a faith person? That's not what I was here for. Like, I wasn't going to do this. Like, I just wonder if you felt like, God, they got me. Like, you read my journals. What do you yeah. do? How did you get inside my head? I just, yes. I can only imagine that that's, it had to have felt <laughs> a little like that. A hundred percent. And you know what? The big thing that moved for me, Jen, was, I had, you know, I came in with preconceived ideas of what it meant to be religious. I was like, well, if you're religious, you're judgmental. You think certainty rather than a space for doubt. It, you know, I had all of these boxes that I was putting religion in. Just as I've been asking, you know, institutional folks to, to open their structures, I had to figure out what am I holding on to that's not letting me be really present to this. And so for me, I've been very surprised that I have become way more religious. You know, I remember reading Abraham Joshua Heschel, great theologian and rabbi of the 20th century. He has this little book about Sabbath. And I was, you know, a little bit of an, a type A and wanting to crush the email inbox and, you know, trying to achieve all the things and working, 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 working. And here was this little book that was telling me that Sabbath wasn't something that I chose, but it was something that God chose for me right? It was imposed on me and I had to be faithful to that. And it totally changed the way I thought about rest of being like, oh, I get to rest when I'm done. No, no, no. Rest happens on Friday night when sundown comes. That's when you have to stop. And so I started doing a a tech Sabbath, you know, turning off my phone, turning off my laptop on Friday nights. And, And it was just this opening in my life that, that I was like, oh, these practices have serious 
wisdom, serious power. And the more I started to practice these different spiritual practices, the more I became religious. Now, if you ask me, what are you? I'm still like, oh, Jen, I don't know. But I, 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 I know that I want to radically recenter this, what my life is for and what I care about away from the number of Instagram likes and my bank balance and how cool people think I am to what can I give away? Who can I love? How can I be of service? How can I be present in the world? And, and that's what religion is here for. It's changed, but that's what its job is all about, is to, is to help us live lives of, of beauty and relationship and justice. Mm, that's such a generous definition. I, I, I can't, I mean that seriously, like I can't think of hardly anybody who would say that's what religion is here for, to help us be gentle and love one another well and care for the earth. That's not what people think. That's not the going definition of what religion is here for. And so I love to hear you frame it like that as somebody who discovered it sort of on the ground like in practice, in observation, in community, because I think that's what it was meant to be. I, I do. Absolutely. I, I think it's the reason I haven't walked away because I, I think the core of the thing is the best way to live. I just do. I think there's something to be said for Sabbath and for forgiveness and for love your neighbor. And I just think all these things work and they would create a beautiful world. And so I'd love to hear you kind of grab that by the tail and find your way to it. It took a real maturity for you to be able to set aside, especially as, as a queer man too, who you've been on the receiving end of what religion can, can do and destructive ways to be able to set some of those things aside and and mine for gold here. I find this lovely and incredibly wise and generous. If I am at home, I am always walking around barefoot, literally this very second. But when I do have to put on shoes and leave this house, you better believe I want them to be as comfortable as possible. Okay. Especially when I'm walking a lot or running errands or like in airports, you know, the drill. So that for me is where Rothy's always comes in. I have been wearing their slip on sneakers for years. You know that I have, you've seen them in so many pictures, but they have so many other amazing styles too, like darling flats. You can dress up, you can dress down. And I love this brand because the shoes are comfortable right out of the box. And they are doing good for the planet. Do you know that Rothy's has repurposed millions of water bottles into their signature thread that goes into every single one of their products, which includes footwear for your whole family, men, kids, everyone, along with handbags, accessories. Their shoes aren't just cute and comfy. They're durable. And here's the key, washable. It's like you have new shoes every time you send them through the wash. So step up your shoes and your accessories this spring and get ready to be asked, are those Rothy's? Because people will ask you that. Plus, you can get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash for the love. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash for the love. Parenting littles is like running a marathon every single day. If you're a parent, you know, maybe your littles are also extra curious. And isn't that a beautiful thing? Genuinely, even if they ask you a million questions a day, my nephews are like this. And so we started sitting them down 
with KiwiCo boxes. KiwiCo delivers monthly science and art projects that run the gamut from like rainbows to rocket ships and literally everything in between. These are hands-on projects that really tap into kids' natural curiosity and creativity. And they have different options for all ages, like literally from infants and preschoolers all the way to teens and really frankly beyond. From the mechanics of everyday objects to the science of cooking to cool art and design techniques, geography, and more. Like literally KiwiCo has it all. And let it be known, these are real deal projects with super high quality materials and end products that actually function and work. They're not messing around here with like popsicle sticks and string. Okay, you guys? So step into spring and celebrate the season of discovery with a KiwiCo subscription. You guys, you can get 30% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code for the love at kiwico.com. So again, 30%, that's a lot, off your first month at kiwico.com promo code for the love. I want to get a little granular on your work. Some of us, because we either are paying attention because it's part of our work or we're deeply embedded in a more organized faith community or whatever, have noticed the mass millennial exit from religious institutions over, I mean, 15 or 20 years, but you've conducted and released a study regarding millennial faith, and it's got a lot of tendrils to it, but maybe one of its core, part of your core work is, is their need for community. So, okay, let's, let's, let's come back up here. Can you talk more about the study and why you felt like this matters? This is worth my time and energy and effort, what you expected to find and what you found. Yeah. So in 2012, there was a landmark statistical study called Nuns on the Rise. And this was not the the, the Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, right? I have it memorized. Right. Mm -hmm. People who, when they're asked, you know, how do you affiliate religiously, say none of the above. And this was a really big moment in the kind of study of religion and and certainly the sociology of religion, because it indicated this generational shift in how people were identifying. And so with that in mind, one of the questions that I was really interested in was, okay, so where are people going if they're not going to church? Because we still still want community. We still want meaning. And what we found was folks were going to fitness groups. This is CrossFit and SoulCycle and Pure Bar. They were going to, to justice movements. They were going to artistic groups. They were going to communities online where they found a sense of connection with people through gaming, through, through making, through all sorts of really interesting different ways in which people were gathering. And what we found was that in these very ostensibly secular places, people were doing sneakily religious things. So they were having a wedding or a funeral in the CrossFit gym. They were raising money for someone who had been diagnosed with breast cancer in their running group. They were doing potlucks. They were doing book groups. They were doing, you know, helping someone through major life transitions, having a baby, getting a divorce, you know, the death of a parent. So when when folks were encountering a major life challenge, they were going to their fitness trainer to figure out some ethical dilemma because they needed someone to talk to. And so what we found was that these secular places were doing religious things, but that the leaders of those communities had none of the kind of institutional support or theological training or frankly, ethical boundaries that you would hope to find in a religious place. And so what we wrote in this study called How We Gather was a profile of 10 different communities that kind of fit into this box. And we asked some questions, essentially saying, hey, if religious things are happening here, 
is this a new landscape of spirituality, even if it doesn't claim that language? And I would say, you know, this is a little while ago now. We released that in 2015. That landscape has only grown and grown and grown. And now well-being is the frame that we're all used to. We're having yoga classes and meditation at work. People are part of coaching groups. People are doing psychedelics. People are going on life transition journeys and small groups. And so you're seeing this proliferation of what spiritual community looks like that doesn't, it's not recognizable if you're looking at it from a church perspective, but if you're looking into the specifics of what happens in these communities, you very quickly start to see echoes of what you would expect to see in a congregation. So I always say religion isn't in decline, it's in transformation because it's just happening in different places and it looks different, but it is still happening. It's fascinating to observe. And I see this plainly all around me too. I I wonder, I like how you keep using the term religious that's sort of tied into rituals and rhythms and practices. What do you make of how a lot of people have begun identifying as spiritual instead of religious. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that. Like, what's the difference? What is the difference between being spiritual and being religious in the, in the conversation perhaps? So the way people use the definitions of spirituality and religion is really about institutional affiliation. When people say I'm, I'm spiritual, they're talking about there's something about me that feels connected to the transcendent, or I've had experiences that feel flooded with meaning beyond what maybe I would usually feel, a sense of, of being connected to everything around me, a sense of value, of, of, of dignity, that, that there's something deeper than what everyday life can speak to. That's, that's what they mean. And that might include practices, right? Like laying tarot or using a meditation app or praying or, or, or reading scripture, but it's very personal. When people say I'm spiritual, but not religious, what they're saying nearly always is I'm not affiliated with an institution, nor do I care to be. I don't want an institution to impose its meaning on me. And, you know, that's very familiar in a Christian context. In a Jewish context, that's true too, right? Maybe maybe I, I don't want to be part of a synagogue or even more for young people. In a Jewish context, it's often, I'm not sure how I feel about Israel and I don't want Jewish institutions to tell me how I should feel because I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. So really when people use that language of, of SBNR, spiritual but not religious, they're, they're saying this is my journey. It's mine to define. Now that's very culturally expected, right? We live in a moment where everything is custom, where everything can be personalized, right? Where you don't have to accept just these particular colors on a piece of clothing. You can choose exactly your mix and make it, make it yours. That's beautiful because it can be uniquely yours. But the downside, Jen, is that it means you don't share it with anyone else. And so as we've seen this increase in in disaffiliation, that sense of personalizing spirituality, we've also seen a real increase in, in experiences of loneliness and social isolation. Because if we're not held in relationship by some other structure, it's exhausting to navigate that all the time and, and build new friendships. And uh, what do you do when this happens? And so one of the things I think is really important as we look at, you know, maybe the benefits of this move in terms of liberating theology and practices is that it also comes with a cost. And I think one of the big design questions for all of us is, you know, like you're doing with your listening community, how can we bring people back together, even if they're not sharing necessarily the same physical location? the same exact theology, the same set of practices, but they still need ways to be together. Mm. We all do. We do. And this kind of brings me to this part of the conversation I'm interested to hear you talk about, which is 
Okay, so I grew up in the church. That yeah. was, yeah. I, I was inside the institution. Which flavor did you get, Jen? I got Southern Baptist. Oh, so thoughts and prayers. Yes, thoughts and prayers. amen. <laughs> it, it, it took a minute. It, I was an uphill climb right out of that. And so that was my flavor. Yeah. And some of the flavor was not great. Yeah. One thing I felt like we did have growing up was the community piece. Absolutely. Our life was embedded there. I mean, my parents, those were all their best friends. Their kids were my best friends. Our youth group was the, the, the through line in my adolescent experience. We were kind of in something together and in some very meaningful ways, like in life, those, that was life. That's what life looked like. And so I want to hear you talk out of your work, out of your experience, where do you think and why did the church lose that tether to the next generation? Do you even think it's possible to recreate it? Or is is that a, an iteration of community and a gathering that is mostly in the rearview mirror? So, I mean, this is a really fascinating question, right? Why, why did that form of religious community not keep up with where the culture is now? What went wrong? I think there's a couple of things. There's some very basic structural things, like most congregations are powered by free women's labor. And as more women enter the workforce, there's just less time to organize the casseroles, the lunches, the events, the youth groups, the everything. You're right. So let's acknowledge that. That's, that's one piece. There was an enormous reaction that nuns on the rise report meant that we mentioned. That was really about a lot of people who'd been kind of affiliated saying, I'm done, right? They were not at the center of the youth group that you were in. They were at the edge and were like, eh. And you know why? It was because of the politicization of religion in the 1990s. The moral majority focus on the family, the way that religion got weaponized against gay people, against women, in all sorts of different ways. People were like, I'm done with this. The sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic church. No, I don't want that. I'm done, right? So that, that really flipped a lot of people. But here I think is the final reason that I I think is really important and that just shapes the waters that we swim in as a culture is the rise of the internet. Because the way in which we engage the world now is through the wisdom of crowds, right? I trust a product online because of all of the other user reviews, much more than I do the expert review. Now, that has led us into some dangerous waters around vaccination, for example. But on the other hand, it, it, it suggests that we gain authority by the kind of acquiescence of our peers, not through a traditional hierarchy, whether it's a dude in Rome or somewhere in the SBC headquarters who says, this is how it is. This is what God is. No, we trust each other. We trust our own experience. So there's a totally different expectation of how we're going to to live, how we're going to make meaning and who's in control. And so I think when when you bring institutions that are very hierarchical into a cultural kind of landscape where it's all about collaboration and mutual influence, it just looks old-fashioned really, really quick, especially when it doubles down on things like, you know, gay people are going to hell when people are like, my brother's gay and he's just great, you know, or it, it, it just no longer fits. And so to your second question of like, what can the church do? Can it bring people back? You know, I work with a lot of religious institutions. And when they ask me that question of like, how can we bring young people back into our community? I'm like, you're asking the wrong question. That ship has sailed. I think the question now is, how do we help people 
live lives of, of justice and rich relationship and beauty and goodness, right? And we have to find new ways to do that in their lives. It, it, it's not about bringing people back into the buildings that we have because it just, it just doesn't fit anymore. And that's, it is really sad, but it's also really exciting. My favorite group who think about this are Catholic nuns, women who, you know, a hundred years ago, there were 400,000 nuns. They powered hospitals, school systems, just about every volunteer organization you can imagine for free, pretty much, by the way, like, let's not, let's not glorify that, but they were enormous. Now there's less than 40,000. So a 10th of the size and the average age is somewhere in the late seventies. So this is a community of people who have been deeply faithful, who have realized that their expression of religious life is coming to an end. But they have faith in the charism, right? In, in, the, in the call that pulled them into this life of service and, and relationship, that that still exists in the world. And they need to find where it's living and try and help those people grow those new structures. Because structure only ever follows relationship. And that's, that's what's most important now is to build new relationships and then find structures that can house them. Well, this is really interesting. Like, okay, so I appreciate the sort of sober-minded assessment of what the church structure has been historically and where it's at now and this sort of clear-eyed look at probably what is and is not possible going, going forward. And so when you sort of cast a new vision for what does it look like now for people of faith, for faith leaders, even for people who have been deeply embedded inside the structures up until now, what does it look like? What would the vision be? What does it mean help people find a life of like love and meaning and purpose and connection? What does it look like? Yeah. So the first thing to say is there is not going to be one model that works for everyone, right? We're in a time of the long tail, multiplicity, lots of different answers. So for folks who are like, I love my congregation. I'm happy here great. You don't need to change. Like stick with what you're doing. Just, just know that it's not going to be for everyone and that growth is going to be a lot more tricky. So first of all, we're still going to have some of the things that we have now. In terms of the new things, you know, I, I think about podcasting. Over the last six years, I had a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, where we read the, the Harry Potter books as if they were scripture. So we looked for wisdom. We, we read them through themes like jealousy or hope or, you know, all sorts of different kind of meaningful questions that we bring to these texts. And what we found was that through media, you can actually build not a congregation, but certainly a listening community. We had people create local groups. When COVID hit, those local groups created a mutual aid fund and people were sending you know, real hard cash to support other people who'd lost their job in the listening community. We raise money for good causes, get involved in, in, in political activities or, or justice issues. So there's ways in which you can see some of the things you would expect to see in a congregation happen in a media community. You think about what is happening in the workplace. Let me say again, I'm not saying all of this is good. I'm just saying it's what's happening. So people are doing spiritual practices at work. You know, if we think about where have white people learned to talk about race in America, it's in the workplace a lot of the time, right? It's DEI training. It's where people are confronting white supremacy. There's a whole new avenue of kind of moral formation and it's in the workplace. It's not in the congregation. So that's an interesting example. But the thing I really have hope for is the mix of kind of networks that are facilitated by digital tools and then small groups of people meeting locally. I am like the world's biggest fan of small groups. I think that's 
That's where transformation happens. You know, it's one of the things that mega churches really get right. Yeah, there might be 30,000 members of this church, but half of those people are in small groups where they are known and seen and loved and held accountable and where life really happens. And I think that's what we're going to move towards is maybe fewer local congregations of 300 people, but a lot more large networks with lots and lots and lots of small groups that happen that are facilitated by that, which don't assume that everyone uses the same language to describe who they are. I think that's another big shift in, in this kind of context is that we're, you know, the, the, the very strict lanes between your Methodist, I'm a Presbyterian, or your disciple of Christ, and I'm this, it's just less relevant. And people are actually suspicious of uniformity. They want the experience of diversity because it helps us learn about the beauty and the richness of experience. And your experience is going to help me learn. And I want to be with you, even if you're, you know, part Muslim and part nothing. <laughs> that, that's helpful to me. I want to learn and love what you, what you can teach me. So I think we're going to see a mixed spiritual ecology where we have some traditional institutions, lots of new things, lots of networks, hopefully lots of small groups. But the final thing I will say is that all of this intermingles with money in a really interesting way, right? You've seen recently a big kind of venture capital investment in things like Headspace and Calm and Hallow and Glorify, these religious apps that are being like, look, we are bringing you spiritual practices or, or really overtly religious content as a company. Now, there's all sorts of ethical frameworks they tell us that, that are in place. But, you know, I, I'm always still really thinking about what are the legal and financial structures that will ground these, because I think you have to find ways to, to ensure the ethical and moral agency of whatever we're building. We, we, I don't think we can just give everything over to capitalism. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree. And I think it's pretty vital to keep our eye on that ball, which is a predictable ball. Yes, yes. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there isn't. And with something so decentralized, without any sort of clear authority structure, that can be a vulnerable space for exploitation, for manipulation. Stress can show up in all kinds of ways in our lives. I think we don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches or teeth grinding, I mean, even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, nighttime anxiety. I mean, fill in the blank, right? So therapy has been the center spoke for my own healing journey. And I always meet my therapist online. That's why I love suggesting better help online therapy as a resource for my community, because it's customized specifically for you. And it's also accessible and much more affordable than in-person therapy. BetterHelp has video, phone, and live chat sessions with a therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. So here's the nudge to start finding healthy ways to reduce stress. Give BetterHelp online therapy just a try and get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. This podcast is actually sponsored by BetterHelp. And for the love podcast listeners, get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash for the love. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. I love celebrating small businesses from side hustle Etsy shops to full-time boutiques and so far beyond. What many of you business owners have in common is this, you have to ship your stuff. And if you haven't tried stamps.com for this, 
it's time to make that right. That's because stamps.com lets you print official postage right from your laptop while saving you money. All right. Stamps.com gives you access to hugely discounted rates, like up to 40% off USPS rates and up to 76% off UPS. Like that adds up. And with the rate advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and times to easily find the best option for you. When your mail or packages are ready, you just schedule a pickup or you can drop them off. Easy as that. So at the end of the day, you get to spend less time shipping the stuff and more time doing the stuff that matters. Stamps.com has been around for more than 20 years and has been indispensable for more than 1 million businesses. I'll tell you right now, the Gin Hatmaker team uses Stamps.com for everything. And of course, over in the Gin Hatmaker book club, every single month, this is what we use for our book boxes. So stop overpaying for shipping with stamps.com. Sign up with promo code for the love for a special offer that includes a four week trial, free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page and enter the code for the love. I want to ask you a theological question. What do you see in these sort of these new forms, these smaller, more decentralized spaces, these outside of the church structures, is there an organizing spiritual principle at the middle? Like when it comes to what are people saying about God? What are they saying about Jesus? Is there even kind of a theological bedrock here or is it, is it not that? Oh, Jen, let's get into it. So this is where I think that the work you're doing is so important because bad theology kills. And a lot of us were given bad theology. And so I think it is so vital that we have voices like yours who are helping us to know God in a different way. And so I think what happens in those small groups is really a a refraction of what people hear elsewhere. And so when I think about content creators, whether it's podcasting or social media influencers who are talking about spirituality, I'm really invested in making sure that how people talk about God is really grounded in wisdom. And I I mean, I think about that lovely Methodist tool, right? That we should always think about four things when we're thinking about talking about God, that there's tradition, there's scripture, there's reason, and there's experience. That those are the kind of the sieves that we need to take any ideas about God through, right? And so I'm really invested in making sure that what people are sharing, whether it's through their writing, through through anything that they that they share, is 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 wise and good. And for me, that's why I keep talking and engaging with religious institutions, even when they're kind of really anxious about what's happening. And I, this is very gross to put it this way, but that's where the goodies are. Like that's where the wisdom and the wealth and the richness of tradition is. And I want to learn about Irenaeus and I want to learn about Maimonides. And I want, I, 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 like, if we start from nothing in this new world, we are deeply screwed. Like we need the wisdom of our ancestors. We need that tradition to help guide us and keep us in faithfulness. And so when I think about what's happening in those small groups, I'm really thinking about what are the people in those small groups hearing and reading and kind of embodying, you know, that's why I love what you're doing. Mm. I am very familiar. I've been on the receiving end of criticism for having decentralized my personal faith leadership out into all these other spaces. And so as you talked about building communities, that's literally my work. 
I, I build communities where these conversations are safe and they have a home and they are welcome. And we prioritize curiosity. And it looks like the podcast community. And I have a book club that operates to your point large, but there's little tiny baby chapters all over the, all over the place, which we did not create. They did that on their own. Right. People are so smart. That's what People I love. Smart. Yeah. They're like who lives in Cleveland? Yes. Like who's here in the book club? We've got chapters everywhere. And even in a little looser structure, just social media, like my community in social media has an ethos to it. Like we feel, we know one another. And so I've been criticized that no one's in charge of me, right? That no one, who's in charge of her? Who is going to be the gatekeeper for what it is she says? Who's going to police her theology? Who's going to fact check her politics? And what's your answer to that, Jen? How how do you think about that? Because you must stress about that. It's a big thing to carry. I think maybe once upon a time I did. And to be sure, I take my responsibility as a leader wildly. That's a huge responsibility. And I take it very seriously. So I don't play fast and loose with words ever. I maybe used to. I don't anymore. Words matter and people are listening and that's a big deal. And so it's, I don't, I don't treat this trite or like trauma law. It's just Instagram. I know better than that. But to your question, I have, I don't know how this is going to sound, but I have a very deep and centered and grounded sense of my own spiritual authority. I just do. I'm, I feel faithful. I have always been deeply connected spiritually. I mean, deep roots. You know, I noticed that people don't ask white men who gives them permission to lead. And so I, I have confidence in, I think the spiritual authority I've been given. So I don't have to answer to the institutions for leading in new ways. And under this umbrella, people take uh, maybe umbrage with this term, but if I was going to use an old church term um, to make it make sense, there's a lot of discipleship happening because we are caring for one another and we care about the world and we are changing our voting practices and we are, we're talking about the earth. That feels like faithfulness to me. It's just not in a church. And so what you're saying to me feels true and it feels authentic to the way that I am also kind of living in the world right now. And I hope, and I'd like to hear you kind of land the plane on this. Because I understand that this strikes fear into the hearts of people for whom the institutions have been deeply meaningful, or they have had a real clear role inside of them. And the things made sense. I get it. I, I have a person who actually likes a clear edge sometimes. Yes. yes. I, it's, it's comforting. It's comforting. Yeah, at least I know. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. there's a, there's a comfort to certainty and to traditions. And what would you say to the people listening who are, they're just wringing their hands? Like, I don't know. I don't know about a book club chapter. That does not feel like it's substantial enough. Like, you know, where's the hope in this? And how would you sort of lead with love and possibility toward people who feel squeamish around this conversation? If I may, Jen, I want to say one more thing about where we just were, and then I'll, then I'll do my best to answer that question. You're a really beautiful example of 
we we'd call this spiritual maturity in in my work of so, of someone who's really clear about where that authority comes from. And I think you know what your job is with that authority is to is to build other leaders, right? Is to help those people invite friends or, or strangers into their home for the book club. Is to bring people together to set the tone of how we treat each other, and for you to stay really in touch with that grounded sense of faithfulness. And so for me to try and do that, that looks like having a spiritual director and making sure that I do my practices as much as I can and get back on the horse when I inevitably fall short. And I want to be really open about that because no one can lead perfectly all of the time, especially not spiritually. And so, you know, for, for, for everyone, whether it's, a, you know, having a big podcast and books and everything else, or whether it's inviting people into your home, like you, you, you want to, you want to have some some safety net or some support structure in your own life to make sure that you're in you're in a good place. So let me say that to answer your question, all I have to offer is is I'm going to answer this in a maybe a cheesy way, but it helps me getting out of a Christian context sometimes to look at how this works in other religious contexts. Judaism before the fall of the Second Temple was a religion oriented around sacrifices at a temple. There were priests. Right, the Holy of Holies was a physical place that it's going to enter once a year. That temple was destroyed, and there was this an absolute crisis point for Judaism at the time. Without this temple, who are we? Where can we offer our sacrifices? It's good. And and Jews at the time had to radically reimagine what it meant to or what it looked like to be Jewish, how to practice their faith. And so, when you think about the defining practices of Judaism today, Sabbath keeping eating kosher, right? Certain foods, not other certain foods. Circumcision. These are all practices that are not geographically based because this was a people in exile, a people on the move, a people persecuted. And so they had to kind of reimagine what their religion looked like. Now, Judaism right now has moved from that priestly era into a rabbinic era. Now it's asking similar questions as the conversation we're having right now. of like, well, what is the next chapter of what Judaism looked like? And I think that's true in so many faith contexts in the United States. It's like, well, what is Christianity going to look like in this next chapter? There is only, I think we can point to tradition. We can point to the beautiful examples that we see around us. When you go looking for these new communities, you find them, you're like, oh, this is, this is good enough. Like there are faithful people here doing good things, but it's also unsure. So I can't, I can't promise more than to have faith. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I find it hopeful and kind of like looping back around to something you said at the very top of the show. While it is certainly true that so many doors of churches are shuttering and Austin here where I live is a church graveyard in this town. While that is all true and that can look a certain way and have some, we can have like a visceral reaction to that. What is also true, which you mentioned earlier, is that there is no rescinding of the human experience that craves meaning and purpose and something sacred. And that's still just as strong as it ever was. We're, we're born to it. We're born to it. That's the human heart. And so that's really, that would scare me. If people no longer cared about any, if that receded, we're in trouble, but it isn't, it isn't. But here's the thing, Jen, I am always surprised by how many people don't have anyone to share that part of their life with. And so if there's any invitation I would make to our listeners today is like, 
welcome people into that conversation. That's good. Ask them, ask them about their experience. You know, tell me about a time when you felt really connected to everything around you. What are the things that sustain you when you feel hopeless? What's a piece of wisdom that an elder gave you in your life as a young person that still guides you today? You know, give, give people an opportunity to make meaning, help them know that the things that they keep inside are worthy, worthy to talk about. Because, I mean, this is something from neuroscience. If we can't name and talk about the experiences we've had, we suppress the level of importance we give them. I really encourage all of us to think of ourselves as kind of agents of spiritual community, of beloved goodness, of, of transformation, because there isn't a man in Rome or at the SBC headquarters who's going to come and figure it out. You know, this is, this is who we've got. Like, we're the ones we've been waiting for. And, and so I'm, I'm so glad you're doing this work and I'm, I'm grateful to be cheering you on. Mm, absolute same. Okay, Casper. Two last questions kind of dialed into you particularly. Yes. I'm asking everybody these That's my favorite these subject, questions. So, yeah. <laughs> I love me some meat. So for you personally, okay, so this whole series is about faith shakers. And so we're primarily talking to really dynamic and like faithful people like yourself who are having faith conversations outside of the structures. So obviously, which is why we hunted you down. So for you, I just like to hear, however you want to answer this, What's the biggest shakeup that you've ever had in your, like your own personal journey? Like something that was kind of like, this was a before and an after. I love that question because it, <laughs> it reveals a little bit of that evangelical background, Jen. Cause I, I think for me, there's been less of the <laughs> light bulb moments of like, I was saved or right. Like conversion. Yes, and for me, it it's does. been a little bit more like <laughs> more, more of an Anglican slow burn. Um, mm. But, but I will say, I, I definitely felt a moment. I had this professor in divinity school, Stephanie Purcell, who helped me meet, like re-narrate my own experience in childhood because I've always told the story and I even told it today a little bit of like, I was raised in a non-religious context. And she asked me, well, you celebrated Christmas. You created Easter eggs. You walked around on Michaelmas with, with fairy lights. You love the St. Matthew's Passion by Bach. Like, is that not, does that not count? right? Is the community that you had and the love in your family, was that not, was that not religious? And it really made me wonder like, oh my gosh, like maybe I've misunderstood my own story. And so rather than seeing my life as like, I was a real atheist. And then suddenly I was really, I was like, no, it's all connected. I just, I just think about it differently now. So I would say that was a real shakeup that made me be like, oh, maybe the boundaries that I thought were there are actually much more fluid. I like that so much. I love that approach. I love that generous sort of reframing of your story. Cause that's true. Uh, that's a wonderful way to like look backward and realize that those boundaries are softer maybe than we were taught. Last question. I ask everybody this one. This is from Barbara Brown Taylor. I don't know if you've come love across her. her in your work. Yes. Yeah. She taught me a lot about the wilderness. Anyway, this is her question and I love it so much that everybody gets it. And please, by all means, answer this however you want to. It can, this can be precious and earnest, or it can just be ridiculous. We, we get it all and we love it all. Okay. What is saving your life right now? Ooh, well, I will say I'm working on something new and there is nothing 
more hope inspiring and life giving than feeling like you're contributing to the solution. And so I, I wake up every day grateful that I can, can work on it. And, and it's one of those things where I'm like, I really hope it works, but the joy of doing it, right? The process itself, collaborating and of creating and of committing to something that I believe in, that's, that's what's saving my life right now. Can you tell us a little bit about it or are we just going to have to go to Brooklyn and murder you for it? <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> it's very early days, but I'll give you a sneak peek. We're calling it the nearness. And what we want to create is quarterly pathways around specific themes that help you deepen your spiritual life. So whether it's integrity with money, whether it's how do I connect to my neighborhood, whether it's death and dying or repairing relationships and to to give people both some beautiful printed practice guides with readings and reflections and all sorts of kind of content and then a digital community in which to practice that together with. So it's very much built within all the kind of stuff that we've been talking about. So I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you an invite, Jen, when, when we're ready to go. Love it. That sounds powerful. I've watched the, that sort of magic take hold in my own community where you just think, I mean, what can we do in a Facebook group? A lot, a lot and real life happens there and real love happens there and real growth and evolution happens there. And so, I mean, those are my tools that you just said. I'm like, oh, this is going to work. This is going to work. Good for you. And you're working with friends and colleagues on this. This is a collaborative effort. My yes. favorite. My yeah. Favorite. Yeah. We're founding it as a cooperative. And that's one of the beautiful things is, is kind of embedding those principles into a legal structure. Yeah. Well done, Casper. Okay. Can you just tell everybody where to find you, your work, everything? Yes. Yes, my book is The Power of Ritual, which you can find in all good bookstores, hopefully, still. (laughs) And you can learn more about me at caspertk.com. Perfect. Hey, thank you for being on today. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your work, all the the work you've put your hand to because it's so useful. And for me, it's so hopeful. I, I feel like very energized by this conversation and looking forward with like clear eyes and a lot of expectation for this next iteration and this next generation. And so I'm just for you. I'm in your corner. Keep going. Like keep going. Thank you. Love it. Go team. Go team. (laughs) Go team. That's great. I love it. (laughs) Thanks again. Thanks for being on today. (laughs) Bye. Isn't he lovely? I know we always say this, but for those of you who ever want to watch the conversations that I host on the show, you can go to my YouTube channel. Uh, There's just something delightful about watching my guest to see his face and his body language and his expressions and to watch us interact. And so every one of our podcasts is also recorded like that. And you can go over to YouTube and watch it if you'd like. To me, I found that conversation very hopeful and generous. And just a space inside of it for so many of us. And I'm delighted to have met him over at jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab. We'll have this entire episode. We'll have all the show notes. And then I'll make sure you have links to everything Casper related. So if you'd like to find out more or know more, find his work, you can go there for a one-stop shop. Listen, if you haven't already subscribed to this show, just do it. That way you're just not going to miss one. 
It'll just load up for you week after week, especially in this series. I don't want you to miss any of our guests. This is such a riveting series with so many fascinating people. And so I don't want you to accidentally miss one because time gets away from you. So go subscribe and we'll just show up right into your earbuds every single week. So you guys, on behalf of Laura and her podcast crew, And Amanda and I, we are delighted to serve you and love this community and am so grateful for a place that we can literally bring any conversation and know that it will be met with intelligence and curiosity and warmth. And I'm never afraid to bring any guest into this world. And so thank you for being the best, the best listening community there is. All right, you guys don't miss any episodes of this series. See you next week.